This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hello there, this is Dan Gore with Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. I am so grateful to be welcoming someone that I looked up to for a very long time. You know, back in the day when I began as an impersonator, uh, I used to be uh, very impressed and just obsessed with a franchise called uh, Lakasha Fall, which was based on the movie Lakasha Fall. And uh, there was franchises called An Evening at Lakash. When I wanted to pursue a career as an impersonator and I would go to this show. Uh, the show I would go to would be uh, was located in Beverly Hills and I would get tapes and videotapes and I'd talk to people about who was involved in these shows. And a gentleman that's on the show today was someone that always came up, his name always came up. At the time when I heard about him, he was hosting an evening at Lacage in Atlantic City and his name is Mr. Bobby Bruno. And welcome Bobby, how are you? Good evening, sir. It's so such a pleasure to be with you. And you look different than I thought you would. <laughs> uh, we have so many people in common and we've just never crossed or were able to work together. And this is a treat. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. You know, during this whole lovely pandemic mess we're in, you know, I did, did a lot of reflection on my life. And it's amazing when I look back at my life and think about coming into, you know, the Kasha Fall in Beverly Hills, that particular location, and realizing, and not re actually realizing, but having this moment 30 years later that I would be producing my own shows based on that concept that I was so enthralled in. And having a chance to meet people that I was, you know, I was 18, 19 when I walked in there, and I would hear people like your name, Bobby Bruno, and I had Frank Marino, and Randy Roberts, and and, and Kenny Kerr. And now I've worked with a lot of these people. And there's so many stories that these pioneers have had prior to what everyone knows today, you know, and that's what I wanted to get at to, you know, it's, it's find out the stories and, and the cement that you guys laid, you know, paving the pavement, if you will, for, for the rest of us that come afterwards. And, and that's why we're here. So I'd love to hear about uh, where you grew up, grew up at. We can start off briefly with that. I was born in Trenton, Michigan. I grew up in River Rouge, Michigan, which is was truly middle class, if not lower. Did you have uh, fam sisters, brothers? I have one sister. Uh, my sister had a disability from the time she was a child, so that really encumbered a lot of our life and colored a lot of our life, how we turned out as a family. And I lived in River Rouge, Michigan until I was... 17 years old, and then I went out on my own. So when you look back, when you think about being, you know, a teenager, was there any one particular moment where you realized later now when you look back at it, like, oh, that was the reason that I'm doing what I do today? Was there a particular person or a movie or, or a show that you went to and said, wow, I think I'd like to do that? I don't think there was any one person uh, specifically that was the impetus of why I decided to pursue a career in beauty of some type, but glamour really attracted me. I was a big fan of black and white movies. I was a big fan of Las Vegas entertainers. I was uh, a big fan of all of the individual arts that went into actually creating stardom. And so eventually those tributaries lead, led me to uh, put them all together and use it for my own devices. So when you think about drag, was did you first see a drag queen when you walked into a, a turned a bar, a gay bar, or had you seen one on TV at all? 
I had seen Jim Bailey for years on Ed Sullivan, but hadn't really drawn any parallels between Jim Bailey was such an enigma, especially at that time, that the heterosexual public had um, questions about Jim's sexuality because they'd never seen anything like that before, especially on a nationally broadcasted or syndicated television program. But I was just more enthralled with the performance and the art that it took to create it. So I, I never I never thought further than that. But he was my first exposure. And had you been a fan? I assume you saw him on TV as Judy Garland or Streisand. Had you been a fan of those characters already? Or Well, we watched Ed Sullivan every Sunday. That was a family thing. And um, being just a child and then watching the guy that spun the plates and then Sergio Franco would sing and they'd bring out, you know, some lady singer and then you're sitting on the couch with your parents and you're six and they say and now Jim Bailey and they bring out this guy that looks like Judy Garland and sings like Judy Garland and you're sitting on the couch going this is the best thing I've ever seen is this for real they're letting him do this I mean it was just it was quite moving and and definitely imprinted me it's funny, just uh, slightly off topic when you bring that up. It's just amazing to me when we look back at, you know, back then we were only looking at the couple stations, if that, that were broadcasting that everyone would watch. And it seems like we might have went a little bit backwards to think there was a female impersonator on TV at that moment and that we're still not so accomplished as we should have been. I mean, acceptance, I think is the word I'm looking for. You know, if we started way back then when you saw Jim Bailey, you would have thought that society would have been far more accepting of the art form or if they're judging his sexuality you would think that perhaps society would have been should have been far more advanced than they are now well you certainly would think by nature that the momentum would have been a little quicker (laughs) uh in the art form but he was so far advanced i mean jim was uh king politically he really knew how to work the higher up he was very um he had a great agent he was very instrumental and telling them what he wanted and getting it so jim bailey was well ahead of his time so then after jim ceased to be there was a chasm because he had really kicked the door open long before and nobody at at that time had um tried to take on that position or that throne there was a, a long gap in there then pageantry began to fill those gaps I know pageantry is a part of your life as well. Did, did, when did the whole female impersonator drag infatuation like begin? Like When did you first see a drag queen in person? I started going to gay bars when I was 16 years old. Very first, uh, I, and I was making clothing for, I was knocking off couture dresses for very rich women. And I got a, a, referen, a referral to um, a guy that worked in a bar. I thought it was a girl that worked in a bar. And I took measurements um, over the phone, made him a garment, her a garment and delivered it to the bar. And it was just before a show. Do you remember who that was and, today? Well, I know who all of them were. <laughs> um, and they all became lifelong friends of mine until some, some of them, their demise when they passed away. But one of the people in the show that evening was Tiffany Middlesex. Tiffany was uh, quite spectacular for a little boy from River Rouge to see who loved Diana Ross, to see this black individual dressed as a woman in a bar in downtown Detroit. It was it was like I got a, a free ticket to Disneyland. She was and continued to be until today um, quite spectacular and imprinted me very much. And how soon after that you felt that, oh, I should try, give this a try? Um, I started making clothes for other people in the industry um, shortly after that. And uh, the allure was there. I watched it and said, I, I can do this. 
I could, as an artist, I can do this. I had been in a dance company for a while. Um, I, I went to beauty school. So I had the tools and, um, and I had been making the clothes for so long that I thought, well, let's give this a try. However, I wasn't by myself and I had a boyfriend and my boyfriend thought it was the best idea since Easter. You'll do things for your boyfriend. Sure, sure. It didn't take a lot of arm twisting. He was an artist also and he aided me in in the quest to hit the stage and and that's where I started. So when you first did drag, were you trying to impersonate someone at that time or you were just trying to be a beautiful, besides just being a beautiful woman, were you trying to look like a celebrity? No, I, I never impersonated celebrities, never tried to. I just gravitated and used the voices of the people that I admired the most as tools. Do you remember what song that you that you performed to? I remember first... all of it. <laughs> what was the first song that you performed to in drag? First song I ever did was Close to You by Dinah Ross. And it was tagged up for an encore of Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And it was... Uh, great. <laughs> it was <laughs> what, great. What bar were you at? We had a bar? I was at a bar called Maury's on Michigan Avenue in Detroit, Michigan. Maury's Show Bar. It, the ceiling was so low that if you stood on a folding chair, your, the top of your head would touch the ceiling. <laughs> Just a little tiny old bar that had been reincarnated under many guises and was on its way out. And some people bought it and decided to put drag shows in it. And it was right across the street from um, a famous stripper bar called the 42nd uh, Street Show Bar. So it was a kind of a hub of entertainment there for a while. <laughs> Many thought sleazy entertainment, but I thought it, it was quite fabulous. And how soon did you become, did you come, become a regular fixture at the bar Maury's or did you move on to another bar to start performing uh, regularly? I only ever were, I only, I was in a contest there one time and then there was a famous nightclub in Michigan, a supper club from the 50s called uh, Gagan's Show Club. And um, they used to feature uh, crooners and uh, beautiful women, songstresses uh, uh, to, to, to sing. And then they began to bring um, contemporary groups in, but it was still very um, old Vegas, red leather booths, big velvet curtains. And um, eventually the gentleman that owned that started female impersonation shows. And um, I went there and auditioned and he hired me. What year was that? That was in 1974. I often reflect about things like this because I really still think like it slowed down to think in 74 that there was a, a show bar that featured that was primarily for, a, I assume, a heterotype upper class, upper scale people. Well, you know, they, they don't really exist, you know, around right. now. You know. It, it was truly a gay bar. However, preceding that in downtown Detroit, this was in Detroit, but in the heart of Detroit on Cass Avenue in Detroit, preceding it for more than a decade was a bar called the Gold Dollar Show Bar. And that was the, the um, heterosexual venue. That's where John and Mary Smith came from out in the suburbs to see the beautiful men that dressed like women. And I knew everybody in years to come that worked there. And I had only gone there one time and just out of curiosity and went in and sat down and they opened the curtain and said, ladies and gentlemen, chili pepper. And I thought, what's a chili pepper? <laughs> That's the silliest name. There has to be a comedy act. <laughs> it just has to be. I had just gotten a drink and sat down and I was only 17 years old and chili came out and I said, oh my goodness gracious, 
that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. I was, I was astounded. And she still astounds me to this day. Yes, I've had those experiences with uh, owning Oscars, you know, own a restaurant and showroom here. And um, it's been uh, amazing because I've hired celebrities that I've been so amazed to perform here. And it's just, it's a, a wonderful feeling to see something like a full circle of someone you've seen on TV or someone you admire, like me talking to you right now, because it's probably kind of freaky to think. But I was, was so obsessed, you know, at the time, I don't know why, that I had to find out about every drag queen working at Lacage. I had to see who they were, what they were doing, who's that, what are they doing, you know. And same with Randy. I never really, I met you briefly, probably I met Randy Roberts just a few minutes more longer than I've met you briefly. So, but I had all these tapes and all this stuff on you guys uh, and I just had to find out who they were. And now, 30 years later, now I get to talk to you and find out and way here, more. And now here we are. <laughs> it's great. It's just great. And there's so many stories that just aren't told and the history of drag altogether is very narrow, you know, uh, I think historically online and oh, sure. you know people think like you know a tv show comes on and that's the end all of drag when drag supersedes us into the future and way beyond into the past way beyond than we can ever imagine drag you know has been around um but for our generation there's so much there's such a much bigger story that i'm trying to get at from all these professionals and people and that i appreciate careers, that careers, i appreciate so. that very much so when you started going besides chili pepper was there one person that you said, wow, if I'm going to do this, I want to be like that person. I want to achieve what they've achieved in drag or as a female person. Was there someone that um, you're inspired to be like? I was working at that club and a friend of mine brought in a David magazine, which was a magazine indigenous to Florida. It did have farther reach, but it was indigenous to Florida. On the back cover of the David magazine, gay publication, was a lady with a crown on. I thought, why, why did they put a lady on the back of the gay magazine? And that lady was Rachel Wells, famous Rachel Wells, who at that time was Miss Florida. So I was like, F Miss Florida, they have contests in states? What is that? Well, I want to have a contest in my state. But what did happen was I looked into it and I found out that there was pageantry for guys that dressed like women. Just like a bowling institution, you would win in your particular state all over the country, and then everybody would come together for the World Series of Drag, and they'd pick the best drag queen of the year. I, I, I thought that was, I, I was like, you got to be kidding me. They really do this? I want to do that. And that I started my Miss Gay America quest. That led me to win Miss America after six years. I competed six times and I won it. That led me to be the first female impersonator that was ever on national broadcasted television. I was on syndicated television. I was on the Tom Snyder show with my mother in 1981. So that was unprecedented. It had never been done before, except under like the guise of Jim Bailey, who was, um, I was representing pageantry and what was years after huge impact that Jim Bailey had made in the entertainment industry. Jim Bailey, I mean, I was in a, this little epoch of the art form. Jim Bailey was a king. I was, I was the first one on national television. So just with you telling me, you know, about the Tom Snyder show with you and your mom gave me chills because I think it's so interesting that for us, I'm sure your mom was extremely proud of you for winning the crown, but it seems like for me to hear like, oh, mom on national syndicated show with me or with us, you know, celebrating this art form is such a, an emotional and proud moment. Was she proud? Oh, 
Or she, she must have been over the top to see. Well, she um, she traveled. I won the Miss Gay America crown in 81 in Dallas, Texas at the Dallas Convention Center. And my mother flew down with me. And the night I won, she was on stage with me. And they took a picture of us. Uh, UPI picked it up and it was on 100 covers of newspapers in the morning all over the country. So it, that, it was truly unprecedented. And then Tom Snyder book, uh, booked me. They, they said, you know, we saw your mom on stage with you would you think she would i said of course she would <laughs> and i went to my mom and said we're going to be on tv and she said oh no we're not <laughs> i'm not going on tv i said mom you have to go with me because of every little boy out there that needs support in this way they're going to watch this and go his mother is on there with him you know it's commonplace now but then it was not at all commonplace i still think it's still not you know when was the last time that a national uh, well, title holder was on tv you know it's still there's always the the, you know, the foreshadowed show that we know about. But my first moment at a national pageant, I was floored. What they go through, you know, I was basically Cody Collins' shadow on her mini tries there. And I went one year with my partner and I was flabbergasted. I was just, I was a blow. I had been to real lady, real women pageants and nothing compares to, <laughs> nothing compares to, to what I saw with this national pageant. Like people- it was like life or death. Unbelievably competitive, and people were bringing um, their, you know, bringing it. It was amazing. And I always tell a spot, you know, people that are aspiring to be drags. Oh, have you have you ever gone to the national? You know, a lot of a lot of the newcomers they don't really know that there is a, even a pageant. No, you know, and it's like the how much you can learn and how much you can see talent wise that's out there way beyond anything you'd see in a bar. You know, it's oh, like, course. you know, I mean, these people are unbelievable, and I was floored. I was floored by. I can't think of everyone's name, but it was back when, you know, when, when some of the RuPaul girls that the ones that have, you know, won and been in pageants were there. And, um, but uh, some of the people that I can't remember the names, but just floored every, everything floored me. The people, the talents and being sewed into the evening gowns, which I had no clue that even existed. <laughs> you know, I had no clue that, I mean, you, God, if there's a fire, you know, or you get snagged on the stage, you are going down with the, with the theater. True. I had no idea. So it was amazing to see that. And it's true. much more respect for the people that have worked for me for so long and, and people I work with. It's like, I can't believe. It's a great learning platform um, only because um, it, unless you're in pageantry and you hear this kind of rhetoric that I seem to be spouting right now, a lot of people roll their eyes, but it really does teach you a lot of things. The only thing, the, the a drag pageant is like the army. It's very regimented. Um, interviews are very regimented. Scoring is very regimented. Timing is very regimented. And, that, and that's just the collective stuff that you do, the individual homework that you have to do and all the money that you have to invest in it before you ever hit the city that's hosting it that year is is phenomenal so it surely is an exercise how to do something from beginning to end and that's a life lesson that's well learned and, and most and, of the time and, how how to do it right or how to do it respectful in this industry you know it's they teach you how to do it properly oh, sure. you know sure and, and and that's very interesting for me and it was due to the chronology of the way things happened and that the time period in which it happened, Miss Gay America opened a great deal of doors for me. Was there someone um, prior to winning that year that you won? Was there someone that was assisting you, that was coaching you to, no. to achieve the no. title? You just watched and, and kind of yeah. looked no, at I've other people. Been in my, I always made my own clothes, hired my own people. You know, I, I, I was a one man show because we were, we didn't have any money. I was, I was a kid by myself. What was the prize 
package back then? Was it, I know it's kind of fluctuated from time to time, but was it a decent price package winning the crown? Um, when I won Miss America, it was, um, I think it was $5,000. And what year was this? Did you tell me? 1981. You but my, here's where my story and your memories intersect. Michael Andrews was Miss Gay America in 1975. Someone and, so far advanced than anyone I've ever seen. When you see those videotapes, you're like, yeah. what is that real right. women, woman right. doing on stage? So, <laughs> right. So, so he was Miss America in 75. And Michael um, had made those connections. And then Michael made his L.A. connections and they hired him in Lacage. Lou Pasiocco and Michael Gruber hired Michael Andrews as Anne Margaret and Olivia Newton-John in the show that you're talking about with Logan Walker, just a, a lot of people that we have come to know through the years. That show then spawned, in a strange way, The Las Vegas Show, which Lou Pasiogo farmed out to Nobert Alleman. And Nobert became the producer of uh, Evening at Lacage at the Riviera in Las Vegas. Well, they were going, that show was running for a while, and they got a deal to make some appearances in Japan. So Michael Andrews called me and said, do you want to go to Japan with us and host the show? And I said, I um, don't have a character. And he said, oh, I, I, thought, I, I, I just assumed that you would have a character. So that call always sat in the back of my head. I didn't go to Japan with the folks. I went back to working. Life is very strange. I went back to working in the first gay bar that I ever started in. It had now changed hands and was still doing drag shows. And they hired me in there as show director because I had so much clout from the past and the Miss Gay America thing. Somebody called me and I had a booking, always sold these really sexy numbers. Big hair, big boobs, big butt, big, big, big. Mm. And uh, some guy came up to me and said, do you know who you look like? And I was in my long hair and big boobs. And I, you know, very coyly, well, who do you think I look like? And he said, you look like Joan Rivers. Now, you got to remember, Joan Rivers used to comb her hair in a bun like uh, Martha Washington, was hardly glamorous, uh, was a comedian. I, I, I was just struck. It hurt my feelings. It hurt my feelings. So uh, in the next year, somebody called me and said, hey, Joan Rivers cut an album. I said, an album? Yeah, she's going to host Solid Gold and she cut an album. You should get this album. She's funny. You kind of look like her. <laughs> And I was like, some guy told me I looked like her one time. And they're like, well, listen to the album. And I went out and I bought the album. And I started doing her pantomime in gay bars. And people were like, never expected it. Because, you know, I would roll on the floor and hang from the ceiling and do all that stuff. And then when I would come out as, as Joan Rivers, they'd go, what? <laughs> so it really did give more dimension to my act. I was developing an act, a real act. We had a huge entertainment venue in Detroit called the Premier Center. Long before Mike Illich bought the Fox Theater and turned the Fox Theater into our entertainment venue here, that we had the Premier Center. And the Premier Center hosted all the all national names, Dolly Parton, Dionne Warwick, all of those people. And they called me and said, we have an idea. You want to come in and uh, audition for us? And I asked what they wanted, and they said, somebody told us you did Joan Rivers. <laughs> and I said, I do. And they said, well, come in and audition for us. And I went in and I auditioned for them. It was two guys in a big theater. And I said, uh, I had my record, my vinyl under my arm, 
And he, I said, who's going to play the, do you have a disc jockey? Uh, we don't want you to pantomime it. We want you to do it. Say it. It's live. These, we, we, we want an all live show. And I said, oh, I don't do that. I'm sorry. And they said, well, do your little act. We'll give you 24 hours. You look good. Uh, come back tomorrow morning, do it live. And so I, I sat up all night and walked, paced and talked to my family and everything. And they said, give it a try. And I went in and they hired me and gave me my own early Lacage show, which I called Mirage, a cast of all famous female, world famous females by all male cast. And we opened for Dionne Warwick and Patti LaBelle and Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. And I was there for two years. And I got a call from Nobert Alleman in Las Vegas. And he said, you're getting great reviews in Detroit. I want to bring you to Las Vegas and you can audition for me. And I went and he hired me. And that's how I got into Lacage. And at that time, he hired you specifically to for Vegas at certain times or for well, Atlantic City? Uh, strangely enough, he hired me and I worked in Vegas for, uh, for three months. No, I worked in Vegas for six weeks. And then he said to me, um, I want you to do me a favor. My friend Lou Pasiocco is going to open a show in Hawaii, in Honolulu. And I want you to go and open that show for him. So I went and did that. We were there for six months. Uh, it was a great experience in, in Honolulu. Who then I came it? back. Do you remember who was in that show in Honolulu? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, April Summers was in that show. Candy Kiss was in that show. Skip McCall was in that show. Uh, Danielle Seymour was in that show. It was a uh, Crystal Allen was in that show. It was a very good show. It was a and good Dan show. And it so, so the last two I don't recall. So who who were they impersonate um, people? Uh, yeah, we, we we had the the stock characters: Cher, Marilyn Monroe, Patti LaBelle, you know, Dolly Parton, and I was the Mr. Joan Rivers character. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to I was going home and. Nobert said, I, wanna, I want you to do three months here in Vegas. So I did three months at the Riviera. And then I thought, woohoo, I made it. And then he said, you go home and I'll give you a call. And I went home and sat there for a year and a half. No call, no nothing. And then uh, I got a call. Out of, I, I was still doing my show at the Premier Center. And I got a call from Nobert. And he said, um, you're going to be opening in Atlantic City in my evening at Akash show. It's been running for four and a half years and you're gonna be the MC. I was just delighted. And it was just a great, Atlantic City was just a great experience. And what year did that show, did you begin in Atlantic City? Uh, I opened in Atlantic City in the early portion of 88. And were you aware, like when, was hearing about Lacage or that brand did that come from him just calling you or had you heard about that brand before? Like when Norbert or, or uh, Luke called you, was that the first time you'd heard about it or had you heard well, about it? Or? Uh, when the premier center hired me and said, we want you to put together a, um, a show where you're the host and then you have these world famous females as portrayed by an all male cast. I said, they have like a show like this in the United States. And they said, yeah, it's at the Riviera hotel. It's okay. called Lacage. And so Oh, I went with, we went to see the show. They brought me out there and they said, this is what we want. You nice. know, blueprint this show. This is the blueprint. Sure. We want a, a copy of this. I was, a, you know, I wasn't a kid, but I was young to the business. Never thought about copyright infringement. Never thought about who trademarked what. Um, gave it my own name. 
and we produced it. So that was, I, I didn't know what an evening at Lacage was, this French thing. And I, and I had um, the movie, I had never drawn a connection between an evening at Lacage and Lacage au Faux. It, it never dawned on me. It, it just, at that time, we decided we were going to produce our own version of a female impersonation drag show. And you- that was Bally's. And the Bally's show was, when I came into it, that was Jimmy James, Algin Kenna. I mean, they were the heavy hitters. These were the big, big girls, the, the kids that I looked up to be, Danny Windsor, um, Phil Craig, uh, Logan Walker. That was next level for me because I had already done this stuff. And you, as an actor, you always, you're always, is this my last job? I guess that might've been my last job. And when I got that, when, and I didn't audition for that or anything. I mean, he just said, I'm putting you in here. We're signing the contract. You're going in there. And that was an incredible experience because they were the finest in the business, you know, at, at what they do still are, um, those that are still working. And those that aren't working are immortal. You know, yes. Bill Craig and Elgin Kenna are immortal. You know, Jimmy James, still to this day, immortal. You know, the, these, are, these are the icons, you know, in my, in, in my business. How long did that run? How long were you with uh, the Atlantic City show? I was there for almost five years. But that and was a great experience. Theater will teach you. When I talked about pageantry being regimented, that was a great learning experience. We did at, at our height, we did 13 shows a week. We had one day off a week. Our room held 580. There was never in five years that I was there, except during one bad winter, a seat that wasn't filled. We were the longest running show in Atlantic City history. It was hard. It was hard. I mean, you talk about doing eight performances a week on Broadway. I mean, that would, that's amazing. Uh, we did 13 <laughs> shows a week. And I changed 13 times in every show. You multiply that all up. And, uh, but it was invaluable because you'd never get that training anyplace else. If you can do that... Of course, you can you do, do anything. If, if if you can win the national, you know, if national pageant, and then also do thirteen shows a week, then yeah, you can pretty much do anything. <laughs> but I mean, I was all—I I have been in the right place at the right time, by the grace of God. I've been really lucky. A lot of people have really gone out of their way to make sure that I got where I needed to go. I'm a very grateful guy. If we could back up to when you won Miss Gay America, just slightly about what what ensues after you win. So back in 81, when you won the title, do you get to go and travel to all the franchises that hold the Miss Gay America entry Absolutely. or what have you? Okay. Miss, um, after you win, pageant season doesn't actually start for several months. So you have a down period. And of course, the system has grown over the years. So there were fewer preliminaries back then. There's many more now. And um, it was still finding its way. Now, when you win, you have a little bit of downtime. You meet with management. They tell you what their perception of what they'd like your reign to be. You give them your vision. You come up with a, a game plan, and then they send you educated out on the road, and you travel to each preliminary, each franchise. As an, as an administrator, you make sure everything is done by the book. You take care of all the scoring. You oversee everything, plus you entertain, plus you have to be a liaison between the pageant hierarchy and, of course, the contestants. It's a job. I was lucky is probably not the word, but I was lucky that I only had 15 or 
18 preliminaries. Now the, the gentleman slash lady that wins, he's busy from the, you know, once the pedal hits the metal, he goes until the day he gives up the crown. That's why when you see these guys get the crown up at the end, they're exasperated. <laughs> they're exhausted because they've given everything, you know, to this um, image of this thing that is beloved to us in pageantry. So the prior year of you winning Miss Gay America, can you recall one thing you might have told yourself, said, oh, I better change that and do this next year if I'm going to enter this pageant? There was a learning curve to that, too. I'm a very driven person. Very, uh, and in my younger years, I was extremely competitive. That's why a pageantry was great for me. However, being that young and extremely driven, I was very focused, eyes on the prize. And in my way, I wasn't probably a lot of times the most accessible or friendly person that I could have been. Any artist that is really focused is sometimes misunderstood. I, I wasn't as gregarious as I could have been in the beginning. I'm a friendly person, but I didn't really exercise my friendliness as I should have. I excluded myself from a, a lot of um, good life lessons that I missed there. When I got into my second or third year, my mother intervened and sat down and said, um, you need to loosen up and be one of the boys because you're missing, you know, you're missing this ride. And if you never win this thing, you're going to kick yourself later that you didn't make friends and, you know, and, and kiss babies and shake hands and, <laughs> and be the nice guy. I know you are is my son. You're not acting like my son. And I would, I, you know, I would go back and forth with her and say, mom, I, I, I got to stay focused. I got to be focused. We're, we're, we're going to win this thing. We're going to win this thing. And on about the last year, the sixth year I went, I just said, if it's God, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I've given it my best. I've spent everything I've had. I've tapped all my resources. Let's get in there and give it our best. And, and that was the year that I won it. Do which never... only led me to believe that, you know. <laughs> Your mom was, might have been right. <laughs> she was right. She was always right. Yeah, she is always right. What did you remember what you did for talent that particular year you won? Yeah. I was the first person in Miss America that ever used special effects. So in my third year, I duplicated... Um, uh, a Diana Ross tactic that she did in her concert where she, they made a, a movie and she walked through the screen. That was unprecedented in a pageant. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, they, were, they were going, uh, what do you do? But I did it to Star Love with, with dancers. And I think I was third uh, in the standings, something like that, third. But by the time it got to the year I won, called Toys R Us, <laughs> the stories. I called corporate offices of Toys R Us and said, I have a Toys R Us located by my house. Can I go in there at six o'clock in the morning before you're open and film myself as a huge doll, Holly Hobbit doll, climbing down off of a shelf with other big stuffed animals, six foot animals? And they said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they say sure? I don't know. And I made this outfit and drug a cameraman there and they some lady came and opened the place and I got up on the shelf and we did it then I built two 16 by 8 foot flats on wheels that came together as a movie screen and I showed that movie on that screen and then they opened them up and I came through it as that doll off that shelf and ripped it off after I did Broadway Baby, and then I ripped it off, and they turned the panels around, and it had Fox and Chase lights, and all the dancers came out, and 
blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so it was a lot of hoopla, but it worked. Can you think about, I know this might be somewhat uh, personal, but can you think about how much money you spent on one year trying to compete? Because I know looking at some of the girls when I went, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, oh my God. I mean, some of the gowns are tens of thousands of dollars they're wearing. And I'm just, I'm, some of them have 30, 40 dancers and every dancer's on point. They're all completely in sync. And I'm like, and how much money are these people spending? <laughs> my dancers were my buddies. They believed in me and they did it for free, transported themselves and fed themselves and oh. did everything for me. I made all my own clothes. Um, I, I bought the fabric at the Minnesota Fabrics by my house. I was a master at making something out of very little. Um, the props we built were reclaimed wood from a house that they were tearing down. The lights were Christmas lights from my grandma's basement. <laughs> so, so no, no tens of thousands of <laughs> evening gowns there. Very but, creative. Uh, yeah. yeah, but it worked. So, so once you got hired by, for Atlantic City, when you joined that cast, was there one particular person that completely stood out and you're like, wow. Because, I mean, the, you're with the, the heavy hitters, like you said. They're, I mean, I can't imagine. But as a kind of a newcomer to, you know, to host uh, that particular franchise in Atlantic City, was there one person that you're like, wow, well, I'm well, so honored to be with this person right now? Well, what was really interesting about it was our circle, in the hierarchy of drag at that point, the circle was small. And April Summers was from my city. I had hired Absolutely. April originally and put her in my Mirage show. And we had been buddies since we were 18 years old. So me and Ed, Eddie, Eddie Fields, I call him Eddie, April Fields, <laughs> April Summers, he was in that show. So that was like old home week. And then Hot Chocolate was my sister from Miss America. And I had known Larry and I competed nose to nose for those six years that I was in there. Larry won two years before I did, but still he was my competitor and like my brother. So I was, when I'm, went into Lacage, I was going into family. Um, Danny Windsor was from Muskegon, Michigan. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I knew Danny well. It really gave me a, a comfortable place to land. I felt like I was with people that, that knew I was capable and that I didn't have to prove myself. When you're the new kid in town, you always have to prove yourself to the suits upstairs and the producer. That is a constant juggling act. What was one of the highlights that you can think of? Because I know a lot of celebrities would come into some of the locations. Did you have any particular highlight when a celebrity came to the show? Oh, God, we worked for everybody. Liberace in the front. When do you walk out and Liberace is sitting six feet from you? And you're sitting on a stool as Joan Rivers. There's Liberace. And he's got a smile from ear to ear. And every time you get a hit a good joke, a high point, he stands up and the audience is saying, sit down, sit down. And I'm going, it's Liberace. Folks, <laughs> let him stand up. It's Liberace. <laughs> um, Cheetah Rivera came to see us all the time. Jim Bailey came to, I mean, we, we met everybody. So highlights, uh, many, 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 many. After that run, you found yourself back home? Did you continue doing Mirage back home or what happened after the Atlantic City no, run the, for the you? No, the Premier Center was no more. Mike Illich bought the Fox Block. And all the national entertainment now was featured in downtown Detroit at the Fox Theater. That venue was closed to me. Um, I went back to the clubs. I, I worked in clubs for four, five, six, seven, eight more years. And then I got a call from Casino Windsor, Caesars Windsor. And they said, based on your track record, we'd like you to produce an all live 
female impersonation show. And I said, oh, I'm live. And they said, no, all live. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. And they said, what don't you understand about all live? I said, you can't find a Celine Dion that's a boy that dresses, look mm -hmm. like, and sounds like her, a Barbara Streisand. And they said, oh, yes, we can. We can do that. So we went through the William Morris Agency and we hired these actors and we created an all live show with a band, a, a small band orchestra on stage. And what year was ran, this? That was 2000, 2000, 2002. And we, we ran that subsequently intermittently for two years there. It was called Undercover Girls, got great reviews. So that show came not to be. And I continued to work in the clubs and then... Frank Marino called me and said, I've got several deals going at one time. Um, I can't be in two or three places at one time. Would you like to be my touring host for Frank Marino's Divas? Frankie and I had known each other since um, I was doing Lacage there. He was doing Lacage in Vegas. He said, you got this. It's mm -hmm. what we've been doing all these years. I'll just, you just come in and I'll plug you in and you do your stuff and I'll leave you alone. And I was honored and thrilled. And we opened in Reno and we were in Reno in 2014 for a month. Then I went to Laughlin for a month and then we took a break and then Reno booked us again and we had a three month run. It's been great working for Frankie. He gives me uh, just a lot of latitude and he's like, just do what you need to do, Bobby. I trust you. <laughs> and as an artist, that's great because you usually have the producer, as you well know, over your shoulder going, don't do this, do that, jump higher. You I, think, I think we get to the point uh, in our age where like, okay, this, obviously this person has been doing this long enough. They know what they're doing. This talent knows what they're doing. So it was some of the, the Kenny Kerrs and some of the other people that I won't let, name their names, you know, God rest, God, you know, bless them. But it's like, uh, you know, sometimes some of the talents get a little out of control. <laughs> not, not, not stage wise, but you know, what, what people don't understand from my experience is how conservative the casino market still is. You know, it's still a conservative, conservative well, empire, the yeah, casinos. And, right. And, and that's what I was alluding to earlier with Bally's. And um, it, I'm not talking out of school. It's nothing I'll have to answer for. It, it was just, a, it was a sign of the times. Management was very, very conservative. And he brought me in to do Joan Rivers. So I sat on the stool and let it rip. I mean, they did everything but give me the hook and got me in the dressing room and said, every, it was that like censoring George Carlin and those seven <laughs> things you're not allowed to say. They said, you can't say that. You can't say that. You were talking about that. That's a lady's private parts. You can't. Talk. I said, it's Joan Rivers. You can't talk about private parts. You can't say damn. You can't. Don't. None of that. I said, so you want a whitewashed version of Joan Rivers? They said, exactly. <laughs> I said, it won't be authentic, so it won't be funny. They said, make it funny. Still, to, still today, when I with the casinos, you know, a lot of them, they just don't want, they all know we're gay, but they don't want that to be part of why we're there. <laughs> and, and, that, and that was what was, was delightful about me living this long and still being able to work in the industry. By the time Frankie hired me for Reno, I mean, I just let it rip and I got great reviews. And I, uh, I came when he came to see the show after we mounted it a couple of weeks in. Anything I should change? I, are you mad? He said, some of it's delicate, but we'll get away with it. Just mm -hmm. keep it up. They're laughing. He said, as long as they're laughing, I'm good. <laughs> so uh, that for as an artist, 
that was just so welcoming because you want to get out there and do it to the best of your ability. But when people shackle you, you know, you, you, you can't censor comedy. And especially when you're the only live act in an all pantomime show, you know, as good as Cher is, she's still got Cher's voice to fall back on. It's difficult when it's you in the stool and they know who you're doing. They're, you know, there's an expectation and there should be. They paid very good money to get in to see the best in the business. One should be allowed to have, you know, I understand there are restrictions. And of course, there are things that you just don't say. But Joan Rivers was a wildcat. You know, she said everything, she did everything, and even she knew her limitations. Do you often get it out to, to have a chance? I know for me, it's very rare like go to see a drag show anywhere. In your time off, do you go out and venture out to see drag? Or is that not something you do? You'd rather just work in the show than to see other drags? I, I really haven't been in a bar in four or five years other than if I was working in it. The last time you ventured into a bar and you saw a drag show at a bar, was there any one thing that changed walking and watching the show, walking and seeing that show versus when you first walked into like Maury's or something like that, well, that you noticed a big difference? Well, in Detroit here, um, it, when I came back from Lacage, I worked in one bar for 14 years every week. So I definitely got to see the trend and, and watched, especially at that time, between 96 and whatever 14 and 96 is, 2010, great changes in drag as we knew it. Science stepped in and changed boys into girls. Uh, I wasn't a big fan. You can imagine at that, uh, you know, I was already in my 50s. Change wasn't something I was looking for. Uh, I had my act down. They were paying me for it. Jennifer Fox had her titles and her fans. I was secure. And then suddenly I was working with 19-year-old beautiful boys with boobs. That was a hard pill to swallow, <laughs> you know, it, because you're not being ushered out gracefully. You'll be, you're being, you know, thrown out thrown with the out. garbage. Yeah, you see, <laughs> hit it, kid. So um, that, that was huge. That took a huge adjustment. Still to this day, I believe we face a problem in, in, our, in our gay bar system with shows because now we're apples and oranges. You're no longer um, going to see boys that are shaving their faces and putting on makeup. Um, uh, you're seeing people in transition from one sex to the other and your audience has changed equally. They used to be all gay individuals that were watching you in the gay bar and now the gay bars are filled with bridal parties. They don't know who Jennifer Fox is. They don't know what Miss America is, but they do know that that 19-year-old boy with the beautiful face and the big boobs is gorgeous. So the kid's going to make the money. That's where uh, I see that it's changed you know, dramatically. And then at that 2010 point and little beyond, we moved into the era of television. That program, good or bad, changed the face of drag as we know it. Changed the pay scale, definitely changed the quality control. And suddenly people that had no stage time, no experience, were being paid a great deal of money and groomed to be television stars of sorts, which was like, what? What's happening here? So one really had to be open to watch that and go, okay, but you you must understand, you know, if you're an adult, this is a, it's a totally different portion of the business. And, and though it gets much shine, it deserves much shine. This is unprecedented. Who would ever have thought this would have happened? Who would have ever thought how widely accepted it has become? 
which amazes me. I've learned to I've learned to embrace it, but it has changed the face of gay bar shows because now those people in the gay bar shows are emulating the people they see on television. We're losing individuality. When when myself and Hot Chocolate and Jimmy James used to get on stage, you knew who we were by our idiosyncrasies, by our personas, by our histories. Now there's an amalg amalgamation of these kids that are watching these people they're making iconic on television, both good and bad, in my, in, only in my perspective, that j just in my perspective. And I try to be um, as open my comments as possible because I don't want to be known as that old man that doesn't like change because I think there's a great deal to be said for what they've done. It's incredible. But then the society, as they do, pits these things against each other. Now it's pageantry against RuPaul's. It, it's just the whole thing. Pageantry is tired. It's old. That didn't mean anything. If you're not here, you don't get the $2,000 a night. You know, the chess game continues to, to evolve. And if you're going to be a player in it, you really have to, you have to have a strategy because you can get outmoded very easily. When you look back at your career, what do you think was the moment that you told yourself, yeah, I believe I've achieved what I set out to do. Was that the crown, Miss Gay America? Or was there a moment when you came out the first night at uh, Atlantic City? I, I thought, I thought the, because I had invested so much of my life into the Miss Gay America pageantry system, uh, of course, at that point, I, I was 28 when I won. I viewed that as the high point. But... Uh, I had no idea what my future was going to hold. I never knew that I would headline in Las Vegas at 35 years old. Who, who would ever think that? That that was absurd. So when I walked out that first night in Las Vegas at the Riviera, I mean, I sat in my dressing room and looked in the mirror and went, is this really happening? <laughs> did you ever get have an opportunity to meet Joan Rivers? Four times I did Joan Rivers' program. She was lovely. Nothing as people perceive her except the people that knew her. And she was exceptionally lovely to me. First time was The Tonight Show. But when I did her first daytime show, I brought her um, a couple dozen roses. And she kept them alive for a long time. Sent me a card from a florist that said, I kept the flowers alive for, for two weeks. Just a card. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that was so sweet. The next day, the florist brought me two dozen roses. Joan Rivers sent me two dozen roses. <laughs> I cried like a baby. <laughs> It was I, so special. A few that really stand out. I mean, and off the top of my head, I know Dolly Parton and uh, Joan Rivers from working with them and casting people with them were the two that really appreciated the people that impersonated them. Be it good or bad or indifferent, they were extremely honored to have someone trying to mimic them no matter what it, what it be, you know, and, and genuine without, without any judgment, they were in love with that person. Well, it was really interesting because in 1982, Producers um, contacted me and Chocolate and Michael Andrews and Rachel Wells and Jimmy D and wanted to produce um, a special for Showtime uh, called Female Impersonator of the Year. They were, uh, it was going to play on Showtime. And so they flew all of us to Houston. Lyle Wagner and Ruth Buzzy came in to be the hosts for the, for the infamous, now infamous, Female Impersonator of the Year tape. And... Rachel did Catherine Hepburn, and Chocolate did Tina Turner, Michael Andrews did Anne Margaret. And day by day, we had to get clearance from their estates. We were there for 10 days as we filmed, and we had to get clearance for each of these characters. 
Well, it got to be the ninth day, and the only one that hadn't given me clearance to do her was Joan Rivers. And I had built this big set. It was a big deal. My father sent Edgar, her husband, who was her manager at the time, Edgar was still alive, sent him a telegram and said, my son is a good kid. He's an actor, and he wants to do what wife in uh, what will be a Showtime special. Edgar sent a telegram to me saying, um, in no possible way, there would be a lawsuit. They were not going to allow this. He said, um, it was short and sweet. He said, my wife's career was on a rise. She was she had just gotten The Tonight Show. It was shortly before Fox. He said, I don't want any men impersonating her. I don't want my wife to be embarrassed, was what he was telling me. So they didn't let me do it. And I ended up doing something else, which was all fine. So years later, when I, when I was invited by Joan to come on her show, I told her that story. And she was truly touched and apologized to me. She said, Edgar was really uh, uh, iron fisted over, you know, my image. And, you know, he was very good in directing me and what was good and what was bad. And it had nothing to do with you at that time. And I was very touched Mm -hmm. that she would, you know, even mention it. She was nice. Amazing. Yeah. Nice, nice lady. And uh, did you get a chance to see her documentary? Yes. It's amazing. Amazing lady. So, uh, underappreciated by society for sure. Everyone should see that documentary. I, 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 I loved her very much. Yeah. When you see some of the, uh, uh, newly crowned uh, national title holders. Is there something that stands out that's different between when you won versus when they won? The look or personality or well, has the image changed at all from when you won Miss Gay America to like okay. Miss Gay America 2020, 2019? Well, in, in, inherently the legacy lives on. And that's why <clears throat> Miss Gay American ownership has, has um, been through um, three different um, owners at this point. And each of them, uh, highly regarded the legacy that is Miss Gay America. So they made sure at all accounts that their winners um, after, not before, it's not, there's nothing illegal here, were those that were groomed to represent Miss Gay America in the way that Norma Christie had originally intended for the, uh, the contest to be, which was uh, a male working in the art firm of female impersonation to spread goodwill through the art form. That continues to this very day. It's only um, because of technology, et cetera, et cetera, it's only become more magnified. So the winners now have more autonomy um, to reach more people. They, uh, most of them have more assets um, to work with. Nobody had funding in my day. Nobody gave anybody anything. If you were lucky enough, a bar would give you a small amount of money to go to a pageant if you really made money for them and they felt that you were a worthwhile commodity for them uh, to continue to represent them. So that's a good, that's the good point. The bad point is that Miss Miss America now is in its, um, uh, coming up to soon to its 50th anniversary. Heavy is the head that wears the crown now. Huge legacy behind them to live up to. What I'm finding is, and it's, and it is interesting, we've had some really magnificent people win this. I mean, really magnificent, tremendously talented, great spokespeople, great with people, um, highly intelligent, degreed, and that's good for the contest. And it sets, it raises that bar. You know, when I hear people say, I'm glad I'm not competing now because in my day, 
you know, like old grandpa in my day, you know, I could, cause I couldn't win now. I always thought, well, don't say that you're, you're, you're making, you're, you're demeaning yourself. Now that I've reached this age, I understand what that means because <laughs> these kids now are killing it. They're just tremendously talented, tremendously. My hat's off. I mean, I, I sit and watch the last 10 winners and I'm just, I, I'm just struck at their ability to entertain and to um, continue to move this legacy forward. It's really something to me. Are you involved at all with National Pageant when it, when it comes to date or do you just as only as a crown holder, are you involved in the production at all? I go back every four or five years. It, it's truly financial because <clears throat> they can't bring everybody back every year. They can't bring all, you know, 40 some people <laughs> back every year. So they rotate it. And you usually if it's a five or a 10 year anniversary, it increments of five. If you're coming up for 15 or 20, they're gracious enough to invite you back. And, you know, they take care of you like a king. Sure. And so, and if you, other than that, if you'd like to go in, you know, on your own, you can always, your participation is always welcome. They pull all the stops out when it's your anniversaries and that makes you feel very special. Sure, sure. And so as far as your career now and working as a female personator, how often is that done? Retired or do you have a normal gig that you do once a month, once a week? Oh, I, I have uh, two regular shows. Uh, at here in Detroit, I still work. Uh, a Viva Diva show that is a, at a club here in Detroit. Some of the people you probably, I'm sure you know, Denise Russell. And uh, Denise is in my show. And yeah, and uh, we do that show. And um, where's that show at? It's at uh, Menjo's Entertainment Complex in Detroit, Michigan. And when they lift this quarantine, we'll go back to our weekly shows. And I have a, a, a weekly show that's going to run there called Fox and Friends. It's your stock Saturday night drag show uh and we're, we're you know continuing to keep that alive with a mixture of what we uh touched on briefly earlier i've learned that the art form comes in it's packaged in many different ways and just because i did it one way at one time i had to learn that there was there was uh, that the art form itself is a form of personal expression um i, I had come from a cookie cutter era when drag was one thing Drag's not one thing any longer. Gender bending has changed the face of drag, I think, for the good. It's always still fun to get the, the old kids together that, sh that share that same aesthetic, totally um, and, and amaz uh, amazingly entertained by the gender bending kids of today and what they come up with, how they perceive drag through their eyes. It, it's, it's expansive now. It's good. It's good for the art. With all the experience under your belt and everything that you've experienced with your career, uh, what one thing do you think you could, you could tell a newcomer that they should embrace as they try to uh, aspire to a career like yours? Well, I, I think people like me, you know, we're, I don't use victims um, in a negative sense, but I, I certainly think we were victims of our time that um, benefited by what was going on in our society at the time. Many of my breaks came from discovery. People on the outside needed, um, needed these, these different things to be filled. And I happened to be directed to them. And I filled those, those voids. Um, today, it's much different. Um, when, when one person or two people were vying for a, uh, a casino job in the old days, now there's, I mean, there's 15 kids that are really good shares right now in America. 
really good shares. When you said share in the old days, it was Elgin Kenna, and then the conversation was over, you know, <laughs> because nobody went, and who else is, is going to audition for this? You know, well, Elgin Kenna's auditioning too. Oh, okay. And then when they saw Elgin Kenna, they went, oh, I'm glad we didn't bring anybody else in here because they would have wasted everybody's time. It was like nobody ever said, how many Marilyn Monroe impersonators do we have? You know, Jimmy James was the first one in line. They went, okay, it's done. We're, we're finished. So now 15 shares are, tr are trying to get into the business. So what would I, you know, when the, they always say that the best piece of advice you could give or get is to be yourself because there's only one you. Seems like it's probably outdated at this point, but there's a great deal to be said for it because there's much more in this business than what you present on stage. I know some fabulous entertainers that are crappy people. They're just crappy people. They're bad business people. Uh, they're bad with people, people. <laughs> they're not people, people. But you can't touch their performances on stage. Those people usually don't get very far. And that's unfortunate. Being successful in any industry, you have to be a well-rounded individual. You also have to know your lane. If you are not a singer, you're never going to be a singer. Don't audition 500 times to be a singer so they can hurt your feelings 500 times. Maybe you're a better tap dancer. Um, being um, really realistic, it always reach, always reach. I reached far beyond my limits. I never thought I'd be a comedian. A comedian. I'm a, I'm, I'm a song and dance girl. Uh, never thought I'd be a comedian. So um, know your limitations, stay in your lane, but reach for the stars. Be good to people. You never know who you're going to talk to that's going to go, you know, you're interesting. I got a friend. You, you've paved the way for many people after you. You know, you should be proud of, of the career that you've led and your career that you continue to lead. And uh, you've opened a lot of doors for people, even though you don't know that. But uh, just by the talent that you embrace and being a national title holder. So you should be proud well, of what you've done. Well, what's really something about that, sir, is that with the advent of Facebook, it, it puts you in touch with so many people that just what you said, exactly what you just said there, that I might not have known, I know now. They have all come to me and said, I got to tell you. And I'm like, am I going to cry? And they're like, yep, <laughs> you're going to cry. So get ready. And um, it, it's just been, it's just been wonderful. It's been, it, it I, I feel I've been re-embraced at a time when at almost 70, I shouldn't be expecting that. Uh, I'm very grateful. I'm a very grateful person. Well, I'm happy you took part of this. I appreciate it very much. And uh, if you people want to search for your bookings and find out how to find you on social media, how do they do that? Do you have a website um, or what's your social media on Facebook or Instagram? What can you share with us? Um, I'm not on Insta. I, I, I decided that I was going to only stay on Facebook. So I'm at Jennifer Fox. You That's find with, me two, there. with two X's. With two X's. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it says Bobby Bruno, Jennifer Fox. So um, you can reach me through there. Amazingly, I've made amazing contacts through this. I mean, when I let Facebook sit for a couple of years, I didn't even have a computer. Um, <laughs> I won a computer like eight or nine years ago. That's the only reason I, I said, I don't need a computer. And then when somebody said Facebook, I said, I don't want to talk. Who do I want to talk to? <laughs> what if they criticized me? What if, you know, they said, you're going to like it. And now it's become such a valuable tool. 
you know, I would never have had this opportunity to talk to you. I appreciate it, Bobby. And uh, I'm sure I'll get the chance to meet with you again. If you ever make it to Palm Springs, let me know. I want to come to Oscars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when, this okay. Is all, when this is all over, absolutely. <laughs> all right, sir. So Thank I, you I for your time. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You have Bobby. a good evening. Uh, all right, dear. Bye-bye. Night-night. Thank you for listening to Icon's incredible creation on stage podcast hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.